Holy Spirit. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Well, having overshot the mark at the last conference, I'm going to make the whole of this conference on the man for all seasons, St. Thomas More. And we have to remember with him uh, that the title Man for All Seasons wasn't made up by Robert Bolt when he wrote the film. It was said when Thomas More was 23 by a contemporary. And I suppose you could say it's the most remarkable title any man could have, even a saint. If any one of you, when you die, people said he was a man for all seasons, or a woman for all seasons, it would be the personification of holiness. I didn't, the last talk, give the title of his private book. I mentioned Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, and though that you can get in paper, I mentioned Dag Hammarskjöld's Markings, which are also in paper. Thomas More's private book was private only because he wrote it in the Tower of London, waiting for death with nobody else to t show it to. But it was, in fact, the book he wrote to console his children and his large family uh, when he had gone. It's called The Dialogue of Comfort. The Dialogue of Comfort in Tribulation, and it's in paper, published, I think, by the Yale University Press. Also, when we were talking about the friends of Father Bassett coming on a retreat, and the consternation caused uh, both to the staff here and to myself to find out who the heck my friends were. I forgot to put in mention that we, it doesn't mean that either you or I are holy. A priest, you, you know that program you have on your television and we have on ours, this is your life. And a priest described how they sit the candidate down and then they bring on friends from his past, and they, he says, oh, there's George, I saw him last in the Pacific, and, and there's Mary, who we met, let us say, at Pimlico Racecourse, and you all smile at each other. This priest said, wouldn't it be awful if they brought on your enemies, too? <laughs> Supposing you said, oh, my God, there's my first husband. <laughs> Not in my case, but they might say, there's the provincial who you didn't get on with. <laughs> so the idea, we're all sinners, and that must be clear, that that we're all bound by one thing and that we came on retreat here and that I talked about holiness because I believe this is the real answer. St. Athanasius, we owe it to him and to Cardinal Newman that our Lord dying for our sins was only like the man who put the, got the rocket to fire for the, for the shuttle. Somebody came and put the thing right that wasn't, wouldn't let them start. But the great thing was when the shuttle actually went off and the, the genius who made it, he, his joy didn't start until the shuttle had left the ground and then came floating down, which was the most marvelous sight I've seen for I don't know how long. 
that God the Father is not interested only in our committing sin and redeeming us. That's totally important. But the great thing is redemption happens once holiness grows. And that therefore the glory comes when you and I suddenly realize when I'm in a state of grace and I'm sorry for my past, then all of a sudden I've got the future ahead. And holiness is having the vision of the next world, seeing the world from God's eyes while I'm still free. So I do stress that because I believe that for many of us this is very important. I quoted to you last night Newman's wonderful image of the mirror in the bathroom. Our Lord said, So let your light shine before men that they glorify your Father who is in heaven. If my mirror is covered with lints and fluff, it reflects nothing. Though it's not broken, I'm not a sinner, I'm, I'm in a state of grace, but I, my life doesn't reflect anything. And that therefore, far beyond being redeemed, which as St. Athanasius said, God could have done without his son dying on the cross. What God couldn't do without his son becoming a man was to, to show me how to be holy so that I can become divine. You and I are created to share divinity. We say, Abba, Father, the Spirit in us, that one day all those who chose God freely, and we are free, one day with Jesus, we will be carried into the divine world. Sounds impossible even to understand, but this is the basis of our faith, that sin is only the impediment that stops the rocket actually firing properly. Once it does, we've got a whole of the rest of our lives where we can grow and be very happy. Now, Thomas More um, is, to me, the perfect example. He's very outspoken. Many a convent in the old days would never have dared to read his books out because he's very much down to earth. And yet, at the end of it all, you feel here was a man who, from early childhood till the time he laid his head on the block, he only had one, real end, one end. And he has a great advantage, far outstrips St. Aloysius and Gerard Magella, the little flower and all these other unhappy saints, that Thomas More had the greatest portrait artist in the world to paint his portrait. So they all look like goofs where he looks totally sane. And he had the most profound script writer uh, to write his life, Erasmus, whom St. Ignatius couldn't st stand at any price and told the Jesuits not to read. He was Thomas More's great friend. And Erasmus wrote the story of More when More was young. And Holbein painted More and his family. So we've really got of him at least a completely accurate picture where so many of the other saints, I'm afraid, that was their purgatory that they were painted. <laughs> now about More, I'm, I'm, I've written a book on him and I've also done tapes on him. But for us here who are thinking of holiness, I only want to read four passages roughly out, out of his works so that we may see him grow. And the first is on prayer, because as you know, not only did he write all the worlds a stage when he was a young man and put in eternity as the last stage, so different to Shakespeare, who left you with dentures gone. No, more from early childhood knew that. And when he was a young man, he went to the Carthusian monastery next to his home in London, practically touching, 
all, both of them very near St. Paul's Cathedral, where this famous royal wedding will take place. That's where Moore was born. Moore went to the Carthusians for three, four years while he was a student. He went to his lectures and things, came home at night and had a cell and stayed up with the monks. He never became a novice, he never entered, but for four years he tried a, a contemplative life. And it was in the, in the monastery that he wrote out this description of prayer. Now the content was not his own. He was translating a crazy man of the Renaissance in Italy, Picus Earl of Mirandola, who was a great man in those days. So Moore was translating it for himself. So you got the English, which is Shakespearean or more, uh, and wonderful ideas, but coming uh, um, uh, from a, a young man who was trying to be a contemplative. It's only about ten lines. It's worth, every word is pre I find precious. It's helped me all through my life. When I stir thee to prayer, I stir thee not to the prayer that stands in many words. Our Lord said that about don't babble. But to the prayer which in the secret chamber of the mind. You've got to find that first. And in the privy closet of the soul with very affection to God and in the most lightsome darkness of contemplation not only presents the mind to the Father but also unites it to him by unspeakable ways which only they know who have tried. I think that's marvelous, the secret chambers of the mind and the privy closet. Privy closet could mean the toilet which makes it all the more endearing, because many of us will die there. And also privy means private, secret, the privy council. The word is a wonderful word. I wish we still had it. Totally alone, the secret chambers of the mind, the privy closet, uh, and not, speaks with a very affection to God, and in the most lightsome darkness of contemplation. That's without pictures in the most wonderful contemplation, like, which is totally like the cloud of unknowing, like Moses in a cloud, presents the mind to the Father and unites it to him by unspeakable ways which only they know who tried. Nor care I how long your sh or short your prayer be. So it doesn't matter whether your prayer is long or short, uh, but how, how effectual, how ardent, to judge your prayers by their, how effectual they are and how hot they are, and rather interrupted and broken in between with sighs than drawn on long with continual row and number of words. If you love your own health, if you desire to be safe from the snares of the devil, from the storms of the world, from the await of thy enemies, if you long to be acceptable to God, if you covet to be happy at the last, let no day pass you, but you once at least wise present yourself to God in prayer, falling down before him flat to the ground. I copied Thomas More in that. I prayed and still do pray lying down because it's a marvelous thing that eventually don't let any day pass that you don't put your forehead on the ground once. When you get over 70, you only can get, put your heart, can't get your nose down. Uh, but the only strange thing is, that is the perfect prayer.
Now that's what Thomas More wrote for himself in the Carthusian monastery, the strictest order in the church, where if he had entered, he would have lived in a little room by himself for the rest of his life. And he wanted to. Strange thing is, he didn't want to be a priest. He discussed that and decided with his friend Lily that he wouldn't be. But he did want to be a contemplative. He would have gone out into the desert. He might have gone to your retreat house down the road there until the children arrived and made a noise and he had to leave. But he, he really was, in his prayer, he, this was what he wrote. But the odd thing is, having written it, he immediately gave up, left the Carthusians. It's an extraordinary thing that in his book that he wrote, Apicus Mirandola, he wrote down how um, Savanarola, the great Dominican who just died before, had preached in a church against Picus of Mirandola and said he'd seen him in purgatory because he hadn't joined the Dominican order. More wrote this down solemnly in the Carthusians and then left the Carthusians immediately. <laughs> Erasmus, who was a sort of ex-claustrated friar and not all that devout, very clever, um, Erasmus said that More left the, the Carthusians because he'd rather be a chaste husband than a lewd priest. But I believe that's totally untrue myself. I think Erasmus wasn't holy enough even to understand what Moore was getting at because Moore wasn't the least lewd. The strange thing with Moore is I'm sure that when he wrote that prayer and lived in the monastery, he suddenly knew he was running away from life. He knew all of a sudden that though he knew the, loved the Carthusians, would have been one, longed to be one, he knew very well that in his case, he was running away from reality. He was a timid man all through his life, a person who wanted to get to heaven at all costs, and I think there was a certain fear of sin and of going to hell made him feel safe in the Carthusian order. So he took no vows, he left. And the marvelous thing is he married almost within a week or two. I've seen the church where he was first married, and you can see where they had the wedding reception, and uh, he married Jane, and they didn't get, he was, he was older than she was, and a bit too holy for her at the start. She used to kick her heels on the floor and scream and want to go back to the country, and he sort of said the rosary, or the 118th Psalm was what he said. They came to love each other dearly. They settled in London, he became a member of Parliament, and, he, and she gave him four children. And then the tragedy happened uh, that um, she died giving birth to his son. So he had then four children, the eldest five, the baby just born, and his Jane dead. Well, you wouldn't imagine for a man who thought of being a Carthusian, he married again within two weeks. And he went to the Bishop of London and got a special permission to marry a second time without the bans being read must be the only saint in heaven who's properly married without bands. <laughs> and he married, when Jane was 17 and he was in the 20s, he then married a, a second wife much older than himself. And funny enough, he got on <laughs> extraordinarily well with her. She was a funny old thing. Um, Erasmus called her a harpy and couldn't stand her. Uh, and yet, curiously enough, uh, the most marvelous friendship between this rather tiresome widow 
uh, that he picked up and himself, which lasted all their lives. And eventually he even taught her to play a flute, um, a duet on, on the flute with him. It was the most extraordinary thing. So within two weeks he varied again. Then, of course, he rose in his profession so quick. He was an attorney, and then he became Speaker of the House of Commons and eventually Lord Chancellor. He held both those very high offices, and he also was a very distinguished lawyer in every way. And then, of course, um, he then went out and lived, and you can see the house where he lived and where his children grew up. And the most wonderful thing, his care with his children. Now, my second reading then to you is, for you, we say we're busy. The great thing is, uh, we always think that in the Middle Ages they had nothing to do but sort of sing Ave Maristella or something. We think the wheels, our schedule was so rushed. Moore had a terrible time. First of all, they hadn't got electric lights. He got up at two in the morning because he had to have all his prayers finished before the sun rose. And had to, they all did. Well, you and I just switch on. There's no switching on for them. Uh, they had to, could only write when there was sun, light, enough light. So Moore had to get up early. And he gives us, when he wrote the famous Utopia, he gives us in the foreword to his friend Giles um, his program for the day. And quite honestly, and he had, they didn't have uh, cars, so he had to walk everywhere. This is what, what he wrote. How be it, to the dispatching of this so little business, my other cares and troubles did leave me almost less than no leisure. While I daily bestow my time on law matters, some to plead, some to hear, some as an arbitrator with my judgment to determine, some as an umpire or judge with my sentence to discuss, while I go one way to see and visit a friend, another way about my private affairs, while I spend almost all the day away from home with others and the remainder at home among my own, I leave myself, I mean my book, no time. For when I come home, I must commune with my wife, chat with my children, and talk with my servants. All the which things I reckon and account among business, for as much as they must of necessity be done, and done they must needs be, unless a man will become a stranger in his own house. What a marvelous title for you who go to work, or are high executives. How many men become a stranger in their own house? Because their work is more important than home. But more after doing all this legal work, and he never stopped, that he had to do all that, that when he came home, he reckoned that before he got down to anything, he had to play with his children, he had to talk to his wife and to the servants, not to become a stranger in his own house. When you think he longed to be a contemplative, it's amazing how he saw his duty as a father and as a householder to begin at home. You'd have, I find it very moving that he did this. Well, what did he do? Well, his children, of course, and he had a... At the end of his life, he had 72 in the family, not all children. He had his four own children, then he adopted a child, uh, then he had a, 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 the child of a friend, and then he began to take, and then he had all his in-laws living in the house, and then their grandchildren, grandchildren appeared. He, I think he had something like 30 grandchildren when he died. And 
in fact, it was called by his friends Moore School. It was a school, and what's more, he taught them. What I find so moving with Moore, here is a man who longed to be a contemplative, uh, that he, first of all, when the children were young, he put the, the alphabet on the wall, and all the kids had to fire at the letters with bows and arrows. So they all sat there firing away <laughs> while he took part. After that, he did their homework with them. We've still got an example where he did homework because um, he set them all to write. Uh, um, they, uh, he got a case from um, a, a case from the law books, and he, as the children got into their teens, he made them all solve it, and he solved it. He did it with them. He did it. He gave his answer. They gave theirs. Typical his elder daughter Meg her answer he didn't keep but she kept his so we've got the very thing he wrote with all his children writing as well he sat down as a lawyer and a busy man Lord Chancellor and, w and did the homework with them and the subject he chose were the four last things and I remember it starts off by saying when I looked this if you go to the pharmacist He'll give you some bitter medicine that'll do you good, but it makes you sick. Now, the medicine I'm going to give you is splendid. You don't have to take it. You've only got to read it. Death, judgment, hell, and heaven. And his, his version, which is published, The Four Last Things, is the most creepy thing you ever read with corpses and skulls, and worse than Shakespeare. How they loved death in those days. So Moore did the homework with the children, which is extraordinary. Then when he was, he was the attorney for the wool trade, and when he sent all his, when he had to go away from home, all the children had to write to him once a week. And what's more, he answered them once a week. And he would correct their English, and they all wrote to him, and he wrote back most faithfully to each child, especially praising his little son, who was the youngest, and was therefore liable to be left behind. So he always put in a nice thing about John, and I must say, John's improving and his writing splendid and all this. This was a great man who hardly had time to finish his book. It was the most extraordinary love between himself and his children. He had, in the garden, he had every animal under the sun, including a monkey and a weasel and rabbits and peacocks, so that every child would get to know animals and get to know flowers. When I spoke on this once, a dear friend of mine in Galveston, Texas, a doctor, went and bought a monkey to be like Thomas More. When I went down to see them once, I found the doctor, a cancer man, specialist, standing in the garden with this monkey there. He was, the monkey was splendid. He was sort of shaving him. <laughs> I said, what the heck are you doing with that? He said, well, you said that Thomas More had one, so I've got one. <laughs> well, it worked splendidly for about a year, <laughs> but it turned out the monkey didn't like women and eventually chased the mayoress of Galveston down the street. <laughs> and so it had to be given to the, to the Boy Scouts. <laughs> but it, was, it made me laugh that Moore had all these animals so that the children would grow up in that way. And it's very touching to see it. Then he went, as I say, this was the foreword I read to you, um, for you from Utopia. We've never, we don't read Utopia. It's the most advanced book you could make, ever read. It could have been written today. In fact, I don't know what 
they'll do with the tapes, I'm afraid they'll have to say for adults only. So honest was Moore, and yet he was praying every day, as we'll see in a minute. In Utopia, what he did was he was stuck in Bruges. He was there on a wall negotiations uh, with the uh, people of, of, of the Netherlands. And the uh, dispute about wool got held up, and the imperial negotiators had to go back to Brussels, as they do in all these <laughs> federal movements. They had to go back and find out from the boss what to say. So Moore was left kicking his heels in Bruges. And so to fill in the time, he started the, the wrong ch second chapter of Utopia. He wrote the second chapter first. Extraordinary. And he, he wrote it, it was very funny, describing this mythical country which was governed by reason. It's the most extraordinary document. Later, when he got back to England, he added the first chapter showing how these pagans, who only had reason, were leading very Christian lives, and then got back to his own country, England then, but it could be New uh, Washington, where Christians were leading pagan lives. It was most embarrassing to everybody. And what's more, he made up a name, which, of course, he's the only saint who's ever added a new word to every dictionary in the world, Utopia. He made it up. But he wrote so vividly that people thought it was a real place. In fact, two or three priests volunteered to go and convert these wretched Utopians. <laughs> I must say, those three priests actually all apostatized when Moore died. <laughs> but they were all head-on. Everyone thought it was true. Now, in Utopia, it's all reason. And that's what makes it interesting, because you suddenly realize how much of our lives are governed by reason, and then what is added by revelation. First of all, in Utopia, they allowed an extraordinary thing. They, had, uh, they allowed divorce. And therefore, maybe today we ought to think about that. It's very odd that Moore put that in, and Henry VIII was so thrilled that he got Moore into the cabinet. <laughs> and then he found to his horror that Moore didn't believe in divorce himself at all. He died, he died on that very point. He didn't realize that Moore was saying that divorce is quite reasonable, but what God says is more. Then he, extraordinary thing, he had women priests. I don't know what the Catholic papers would say today, and yes, he allowed women to be priests. By reason, there's no reason why women shouldn't be priests. Men and women are just equally the same in that. No, but what's interesting is, if women priests are never, not, don't we never get them, it's because if it, if they, we may yet get them. I hope not, I should be dead by then. But, uh, <laughs> but the odd thing is that it's quite reasonable to have women priests. It's the question is, did God, what did God reveal? And then Moore's got a most wonderful thing for teenagers. This is the thing that will make you, I don't think they'll play these, this one tape when we played anywhere. He said, before you marry in Utopia, the boy, uh, with three or four sort of lay brothers around him, goes into his girl's room and looks at her body. I don't know how long, and then, then he goes back to his room and goes to bed, and then she's brought by three nuns to look at his body. Which sounds awful, but more so clever. More said, who'd buy a horse without taking the saddle off? <laughs> it's an amazing, wise thing, and he says, fancy giving up your whole life, man or woman, to a, just that piece of a person's body. <laughs> he said, that's not enough. 
to, to commit yourself to total happiness when you've only seen a person's nose and mouth made up. No, so he, he, he permitted that. If he was alive today, I'm quite sure he would be totally in favor of sunbathing. Because I think today people are more free that in marriage it's absolutely vital by reason alone that we should really not just fall for the nonsense that we, we get today on television, falling in love with Elvis, the pelvis, I would have said, you go not to hell but to limbo for good and you'll, you'll find him there. When you think of the silly images that boys and girls are fed today and the whole falseness of sex, you feel more was really marvellous in, in that. He was an extraordinary man. He even mentions the toilet several times, which, isn't it funny, they never mention the toilets. In my country, the, in the Missalette, our Lord mentions the restrooms once, when the Pharisees said, your disciples have eaten without washing their hands and they're impure, and our Lord said, nothing from impure is impure inside, and you eat and it goes into the latrine. Do you know in our Missalette, they put four dots to, and left that bit out? <laughs> which is extraordinary because, honestly, the toilet is one of the most important things in the world. <laughs> if I read your commercials, I would say people are thinking much more about their bowels than about the Holy Shroud of Turin. <laughs> Why we've made religion to be so airy-fairy, I don't know. And so I must end. It's going to be nearly the end now. There's one most marvellous passage which now we can read because of abortion. If I can find the place I marked it, it's the most moving thing when Moore was having an argument with Tyndall about, um, he was having an argument about miracles. And Tyndall said that he didn't believe in miracles. And Moore said this, and it's true, it's, it's his own story with his own daughter. Forsooth, I said, because we speak of a man raised from the dead to life, there was in the parish of St. Stephen in Walbrook, London, where I dwelt before I came to Chelsea, a man and woman who are both still living. That's his own daughter. And at that time they were both young. The elder of them was not past 24. It happened to them, as it does among young people, that they fell in love. And after many delays, for the maiden's mother was much against it, at last they came together and were married in St. Stephen's Church, which is not greatly famous for any miracles, though yearly on St. Stephen's Day it is somewhat sought after and visited by the, by the devout. The church is still there. But now, to keep the story short, as the custom is with brides, as you well know, this young woman was brought to bed by honest women. And then after that went the bridegroom to bed, and everyone went their ways and left them twain there alone. And that same night, oh no, wait a moment, let me not lie, for in truth I am not sure of the time, but certainly as it appeared afterwards, it was probably that same night or some other time soon afterwards or perhaps a little before, the time does not matter very much. Exactly, and, and as for the matter, all the parish would testify that the girl was known to be very honest. But for the conclusion, the seed of these two turned in the woman's body first into blood and after that into the shape of a man-child. And then it came alive and she grew great with it 
and within a year she was delivered of a fair boy. And forsooth, it was not then, for I saw it myself, more than a foot in length. And yet I am sure that he has now grown an inch taller than I am. In good faith, then, I have yet to meet a man who could claim for himself any other kind of beginning than this scene. And it seems to me a greater miracle for a baby to be born than for a man to be raised from the dead. It's a perfect picture, and when you think of abortion, I'm so glad there was one saint who was willing to see the miracle of God making another child. So we must now almost end. Eventually, Moore went to the Tower of London, and he wrote there, I won't read the little passage, to his daughter, the very daughter, no doubt, who, who had this baby born. Um, he wrote to her and said, they put me in here, but as you know very well, my dear Meg, that if it hadn't been for my wife and you, I would have been in a much narrower cell long ago. And as the king has put me in here without my asking, I'm entirely happy. And his last line was, God dangleth me on his lap as though I were a little boy.